Welcome to Kingston Reads Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Welcome to the fourth of our podcast series on the key issues arising from the government's Job and Skills Summit in September this year. I'm Krista Lennard and I'm thrilled to be here in Perth with Michael Stutley to talk all things migration. Hello. Hello. <laughs> That's how excited I am, Krista, that I jumped in and said hello right before you. Hello. Now, Michael is Kingston Reads' resident expert on all things migration and has many considered and some would say quite passionate views on this topic. So I thought our final podcast in this series should be a rapid fire Q&A. Rapid fire? Uh, look, I've had an advanced viewing of your questions and there's nothing rapid about it. <laughs> well, at least then let me hit you with some hard questions and you can demystify and perhaps even offer some practical solutions on how to fix some of the structural fractures that Australia's skilled migration system currently has. Now, you may recall that migration and skills featured strongly on the jobs and skills summit agenda, and that was for obvious reasons. The Albanese government announced at the end of the summit that it had agreed to 36 immediate initiatives to help address the migration shortage. Now, before I hit Michael with my hard questions, it's important, I think, to acknowledge and frame this discussion with the understanding that there's quite an ideological tension at play here between what the ACTU wants in terms of limiting overseas workers taking, quote, local jobs, and the acknowledgement that there is a severe skill shortage in this country and our skills and training system just isn't fit for purpose to grow locally home skills and will require serious structural change at the same time. So this is obviously coupled with incredibly low unemployment rates that we're experiencing now. And it really is a perfect storm, isn't it, Michael? And one that the Albanese government is going to have to manage carefully if it is to drive proper structural change. Well, tension is one way to describe it. I'd say it's a high stakes game of tug of war. So on one side, we have parties who are looking to keep the supply of workers low and to drive up demand and therefore wages. Parties, let's face it, the unions. The unions, yep, yep, thank you, call it out. And the other side has almost run out of distress beacons calling for workers to keep the doors open. Government, as we have found previously and we continue to find today, is stuck in the middle, frozen with political fear. And for a nation of migrants, this is truly paradoxical. Well, I haven't been in a high-stakes game of -of tug-of-war since primary school. So for someone who sits on the edge of the playground looking in at the dilemma, I thought a good place to start as any is looking at the actions that the Albanese government has said it will take immediately following the summit. So question number one, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. One of those immediate actions that they promised to do was to increase the permanent migration program to 195,000 migrants in the next year. And they said that will help ease the widespread critical skill shortage. So what are the current levels and will that increase be enough? Well, first of all, I take issue with this immediate action point. It's immediate action because it's easy. It was always going to be the case that they would introduce something that was going to happen irrespective of the skill summit, and this is a great example of one of those things. The migration placements for 22-23 is forecast at 160,000, and key for our listeners is that 
Of those 160,000, only 109,000 are uh, dedicated towards skilled migration. And of those, even fewer that are dedicated to the employer-sponsored stream. So yes, it's an easy change for government to implement, which is why it's been announced. But is it enough? Look, I think the answer to that's no, and it's no for two reasons. Firstly, we've got this perfect storm of incredibly low unemployment rates. There's a shortage of workers and a shortage of skills. And this is all on the back of a mass exodus of migrants during the last two years. It's something that, um, particularly in the West, we're very familiar with as we um, came out of the last boom cycle and all of our workers moved onto the East Coast for infrastructure projects. It's certainly something that's been exploded now to a national issue off the back of COVID-19. And secondly, the solution is not necessarily with the number of places that we have available. We need to address this prejudice that sits within the community towards migration and attract migrants back to Australia. At the same time, we obviously need to fix the bureaucracy, but that goes without saying. Well, tell me more about the prejudice. Well, look, it's this idea that has been pushed through the media from various parties, and you can call it out again, <laughs> that... Uh, oh, oh. You might say it, I won't. (laughs) That migrants take jobs from Australians or that more migrants would mean less training and less opportunity for Australians and it's just simply not the case. Well, the government has committed to provide $36 million in additional funding to accelerate visa processing uh, and to resolve the, the visa backlog. Now, Michael, presumably that means more staff to process, but tell us about visa processing and the difficulties there and what you see as the issues and, quite frankly, is throwing money at it going to fix any structural flaws in the system? Throwing money is always a welcome development because, yes, it will fix the backlog. There's no escaping that. Uh, We need more visa processing officers and they need to work through the applications a lot faster. But you're right to call out the structural flaws because there are a few of them um, and some of them which we can fix now, some of them which will take longer. But we obviously need to address this bureaucracy within the system. It's a symptom that has arisen over successive governments in an attempt to address political concerns. But this is where I take a slight deviation from the mainstream on this issue. <laughs> and that doesn't surprise me, <laughs> knowing us. <laughs> well, get ready for it. I do, yes. Look, the calls to reform the skilled migration program completely missed the point. Reform is necessary, of course. I'm not saying it's not. But what is needed now is a change in the national mindset to embrace the economic, the social, the demographic benefits that follow migration. To do this will obviously require national leadership. It's something which I hope that our politicians are up to. But the need for migration must be spelt out forcefully in Parliament. The media and the forums around the country, we need to get on the same page. We need to be in sync. Today, our politicians appreciate its economic necessity, that's without a doubt, but seemingly are afraid to state it publicly. It's only the case when we have an effective program that has come off the back of honest debate about what it means or what's necessary for change. I've attended the Kingston Reads Job Summit Fringe Festival and certainly I think there was some really good debate there and a number of politicians are happy to call it out in those sessions. But let's shift track a little bit. Now, the Australian university sector has for over a decade now made an industry of increasing enrolments for overseas students and we saw that sector collapse dramatically in the, the first year of the pandemic. With the return of international travel and increasing the number of international students into our university sector being a priority, is I struggle though because there's still an immense skills loss, isn't there, when they return at the completion of their degree to their country of origin or indeed 
to other countries that have more attractive industry or easier entry requirements. So my question, Michael, is would increasing the duration that an overseas graduate can live and can work in Australia following the completion of their degree ease the skills shortage? And if so, how and why? Absolutely, it would. But let's just address two things, first of all. The education sector, yes, it's it's huge and it represents a huge export opportunity for this country. But we also need to look at aged care and healthcare as a couple of sectors which have really struggled through the last couple of years with the exodus of <coughs> students um, through COVID-19. Ultimately, the problem for students is that once they graduate, they need then an alternative mix of visas to enable them to gain the minimum necessary experience to apply for a more stable skilled visa. I'll give you an example. A student graduating as a geologist today would need to apply for graduate visas to remain in the country and work for at least the next two years to enable them to qualify for a TSS visa or perhaps even three years for a regional skilled visa. Uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty associated with this for uh, students. Of course, they've got to find the, the employer and then... They do, they do. They need to find the employer that's prepared to sponsor them on a visa when they know that potentially after that two-year period they're going to leave or, um, or return to their home countries and take the skills with them, which is exactly the point that you make. And for this reason, I think the Albanese government has indicated it is prepared to extend the work rights by allowing two additional years of stay for recent graduates with select degrees. But it needs to do more. Two years is not enough. Two years doesn't even get as close to that experience level, the minimum level that's required for some of these skilled visas. And it's certainly not enough certainty for employers. It also isn't probably enough realistically for a, an overseas student to, you know, settle in and create roots here where mm. they might actually want to stay following that period rather than leave. While we're on the topic of students, walk past any cafe, restaurant or retail shop and you'll invariably see a staff wanted sign in the front window. The strength of our service economy was decimated during the pandemic when borders closed and Overseas students and other travellers ceased being able to come. Now, this will surely ease as the global travel industry springs back to life. But for the moment, what does the government propose to do in relation to the current relaxation of working restrictions for student and training visa holders? One good thing that's come out of the summit is that we finally have a date on the extension of the relaxation. And right now it's pegged for 30 June 2023. Um, this will help ease skills and labour shortages and it's a welcomed piece of certainty for employers and for visa holders. But look, in addition to the service economy, this has provided enormous benefit to our aged and healthcare sectors. And in fact, I would go even further. Why not introduce an unlimited work restriction for students working in the same field as their study? For example, what about nurses? What, why don't we allow nurses to work as many hours as their course permits in aged care? Why not? Uh, I think certainly the systematic staff shortages combined with the benefits of on-the-job training um, would make that a no-brainer for our legislators. Um, but still, it's policy inertia, isn't it? A small amount of change for not a lot of gain. Absolutely. Tell me, what about the long-term drain on skills and areas for more structural change to our migration system? As an island nation uh, with a deep pride underpinning the richness of our multicultural society, what are the factors or the key areas over the next decade that need to be pushed to ensure we don't fail in meeting the challenges that lie ahead? Look, to put it simply, our psyche needs to change. 
the government has obviously committed to a review of the structure and the objectives of the migration system. But let's just fast forward. What we need to do is speed up the process. We need to roll out the most ambitious recruitment drive this country has ever seen. Now, for our listeners, many will remember the um, Lara Bingles, where the bloody hell are you? Well, there's no point asking that this time around because we know where they are. They've been scared away from COVID-19 and Australia's lack of support for temporary visa holders. Well, how do we achieve your, your ambitious well, agenda and change? It occurs to me that we need to think bold. <laughs> We need to look at our embassy network. We have an embassy network with ambassadors all over the world and presumably they've got the title for a reason. They're our ambassadors and they need to roll out a coordinated recruitment drive to revive the immigration spirit of the post-war era. Let's just tell the world Australia is open for business, the business of opportunity, of employment and of embracing cultures. Going hand in glove with these changes, the reforms will not only improve the process, but help embed it as a positive in our nation's psyche. Well, of course, this all requires governments, though, at a local, state and federal level to work together to ensure that we have the infrastructure, that we have housing and, and social services are well planned to meet the needs of a growing population. I mean, those governments need to be doing that anyway. But it is a complex mixing pot of, of conundrum and coordination, isn't it? Look, before we stop or finish up, I am interested in the red-hot issue of migration exploitation. Can I, can I just say, I'm nowhere near finished yet, so okay, well. we've got plenty to go on this one. <laughs> we'll see how long people's journeys into the office are. Um, what do you see as a fundamental uh, to migration and industry reform to ensure we don't have migrant exploitation? Look, I'm going to be a little bit controversial on this one. I hear this a lot. And what I say about exploitation is that the concerns around it are often overstated. We have a robust industrial relations system in this country. Think about it. We've got the Fair Work Act, national employment standards. We have modern awards and enterprise agreements. We have access to the Fair Work Commission and the courts, all of this in a no-cost jurisdiction. The reality is that Australia has one of the most highly regulated industrial relations systems in the world. This doesn't mean, of course, that we ignore it, and I'm not suggesting we do because when it does occur, it's obviously serious. But we do need to distinguish between scare campaigns and real issues before we can address reform. And this goes back to my point earlier about this prejudice that's built in to our, our collective way of thinking, and it's just not right. Now, that plan is underpinned by the creation of Jobs and Skills Australia and the establishment of the Jobs and Skills Australia work plan in consultation with all jurisdictions and stakeholders. Uh, and it's intended that that will address workforce shortages, build long-term capacity in priority sectors. Now, Michael, this sounds incredibly ambitious and, to be frank, somewhat utopian in outlook. We're again looking at the need to radically change the way in which Australians are skilled and trained, and that's a costly process, no doubt, but one that requires the commitment of governments at all levels of industry and stakeholders and indeed employers who have the resources and the need to provide on the tri job training. It's going to be no easy task, is it? No, not at all. But look, I'm on board with this. Back in 2018, we had some significant reform of the migration framework and introduced to that was something called the Skilling Australians Fund Levy. 
This was a that levy. That was the SAF or SAF. The SAF, that's yeah. right, the yeah. SAF levy. So the SAF was introduced and it required all employers nominating a visa applicant to pay a levy up to $5,000 as a one-off for permanent migration or up to around $7,000 over four years for temporary. So no small change. And it was the idea of it was that it would grow apprenticeships and training programs and support Australian jobs and growth. But one of the key criticisms of this SAF levy is that its application has been questionable. Has it achieved its purpose? Who's managed the funds? Where has it gone? It's a real missed opportunity. And so I do have some sympathy towards this idea that we need to improve training. But training and migration are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist, and in fact they do, because when we bring migrants in, it allows business to continue, it allows uh, growth and new opportunities to arise within business, and obviously then business can invest in training and upskilling of its own people. Now, people have this misconception that it's easier to bring a migrant in and not train your own people. It's just absolutely not the case. In fact, it's much more expensive to do that and the only reason we can't train more people now is because we don't have them. There is a, a shortage of workers. Yeah, right. So if you were gifted an unlimited budget, uh, you had no short-end political horizon to consider and you had the strongest team on that tug-of-war rope, what are the three most important reforms that you would like to take to the Albanese government today in respect of migration and skill reform? Having been in Canberra recently, I certainly tried. I, I attempted an approach towards Albanese and I was quickly held back by his security entourage, perhaps because he knew I had some good things to say about this. So, look, three really easy solutions, I think, uh, that should be seriously considered by government. First, either simplify the skilled occupations list or just replace it altogether. It would address the issues with significant shortages for semi-skilled and low-skilled workers and it would involve making visas available for all occupations. Now, this is not something to shy away from or be scared of. We can open it up, so all occupations are up for grabs, but it's dependent on minimum income levels meeting at least median income levels, which is one of the biggest criticisms of the current framework. And it would do away with this need to just arbitrarily increase the temporary skilled migration income threshold, which in my opinion would just simply break the system. Second, Remove the arbitrary requirements for labour market testing above high income thresholds for high skilled workers in international business transfers. It's simply not necessary. It's, it's one of these bureaucratic measures which achieves zero purpose and in fact slows things down and creates this backlog. And third, just allow for semi-skilled and low-skilled migration. Don't, again, be shy of it. We can do this through a protective system and we can create a new accreditation option for current sponsors who are trusted sponsors who we know are not going to exploit workers um, and we can really strive forward as a nation. Big ideas. I'm a big guy. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be in the room with you in sunny Perth uh, and really appreciate your views and thoughts on this topic. If you haven't listened to any of the Job Skills Summit series yet, then you can go back into the podcast collection and hear the first three of those. Thoroughly encourage those. Great listening and it's always a pleasure. So thank you very much and we'll see you soon. Thank you.